All right, if you guys want to go ahead and open to Philippians chapter 2, um, we're going to park just in Philippians. Um, it's not always a good idea to stay uh, so restricted in a lesson. Um, but my, my goal uh, in this lesson, since it's our first <coughs> theme lesson, our sermon, right? We, our, our last Sunday of each month, we're focused on our theme. And our theme is uh, shot to shine or shining as lights in the world. And we have two goals, right? We have a learning goal and a living goal. Um, God's work is to change our minds and our hearts, right? That's the learning goal in internal change. And a living goal, God's design is to change our lives, what we do in our lives with our time, with our body. So our learning goal is to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. And we made that sound very personal because that was what Paul wrote, what we read, that he's telling them to each work out their own. And our living goal is to shine as lights in the world. And we'll spend the year touching on both of those. What does it mean for me, an individual, to work out my own salvation? And what does it mean as an individual and maybe even as a church to shine? Right, as lights. But what I want to do today is look at the foundation for what got Paul to this point in the letter. What sort of built up to it? Why, why is he saying this now? Why is he saying this to these people? Um, it stands alone as a command, right? Uh, being spoken um, by an apostle. And that's good enough, right? But I think we can, we can gain some understanding, gain some insight into what built up to this point. So let's... let's Actually, I said to go to Philippians 2. Let's go back to chapter 1 first. Um, <clears throat> I kind of divided the, the lead up to this into um, three sections. Um, there's the greeting um, in verses 1 through 11, and we'll talk about that in detail. Then he describes his situation in verses 12 through 26. What's going on in his life and around him? And then chapter 1, 27 through chapter 2, uh, verse 11, it's kind of really the section where he first gives the Philippians a command. And he says, hey, this is, this is what you've got to do. This is what you need to do. And within that text, he talks about why. What's the purpose of the command? And I think that leads us into our, our passage, right, which is Philippians 2, verse 12. And so we'll talk about that in a second. But if you, if you look in, in chapter 1, the first 11 verses, this is, to me, it's, it's, I won't say excessively, but it's an overwhelmingly warm greeting section. We're not going to read all of this, but look in verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. You know, I thank God. In all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy, right? I mean, he just seems to be kind of bubbling over. It's like, I love thinking about you guys. Like, I love praying about you guys. I, I look forward to praying about you. I want to pray to God about you. And when I do pray to God about you, these are the things I think about, right? Your participation in the gospel. Um, Verse 7, for it is only right for me to feel this way, right? So now he is saying, look, this is not just what I do. This is a feeling. I feel this way about you guys. 
It is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Right? So he says, I, I feel this strongly about you, not just because like I was in Philippi and I baptized some of you or I taught you the gospel. He actually says, I feel this way about you because you're all partakers of grace with me. Like in, the, in my imprisonment, you're partakers of my grace. In the defense and confirmation of the gospel, right? So defending the gospel, but then confirming it in power, right? Showing that it to be, it to be true. They're partakers of grace. Well, those things don't sound like gracious things. They sound like painful things. But Paul says you're partakers of grace, with me in those things. Basically, they're co-workers. They're fellowshipping with him when they engage in those things. He sees them as, as fellow workers. Beginning in verse 12, we get into the second section, as I've divided it. His situation. Okay, so he, he says, this is how I feel about you. I'm glad to be writing to you. I'm glad to pray for you and about you. I want you to know about my circumstances, verse 12. Um, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Well, that sounds good. Right? So things must be great in Paul's life because the circumstances that surround him are causing the gospel to flourish. Next verse. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. And verse 14, that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word. So really what Paul's saying is I'm not really comfortable, but that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, is the gospel being furthered. He says in my circumstances, that's what's going on. I'm in prison. The guard hears about it. In fact, they all are hearing about it. It's going throughout. In fact, the brethren, because all of the animosity is really focused on me and they see that I'm holding up, they have more courage to go out and speak. And I didn't read it, but there's also people who say, you know what, now that Paul's out of the way, I can get some glory for myself. I'm going to go preach the gospel. So even then the gospel is being preached. So it's like everything about his circumstances through Paul's eyes, which I would argue is through the Spirit's eyes also, is great. Right? The gospel is being furthered. So, I mean, even though he's in prison, it, it seems a really positive letter. I feel warm about you guys. It's not the Galatian letter, right? This is Paul. How could you abandon the gospel? Right? I mean, that's how Galatians goes. I'm Paul. You've abandoned the gospel. Philippians is like, you know, this is, this is good. I'm in prison, but things are really good. Things are good. And, you know, it gets in, it gets a, there a little bit of angst in verse 21, right? For, to me, to live as Christ and to die as gain. He, he sort of broaches the subject that, hey, you know what? Could, could end in death. I mean, I could die. But even that's a positive thing because then I go to be with Christ. Um, he reaches this conclusion in, in verse 25. He says, convinced of this. I guess I should read verse 24. That's the this. Verse 24, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So what he's saying is, I'm at, it's actually more useful to you and because he's saying this likely to the Spirit, for Paul to remain 
for them, for their, their purpose. And he says in verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress. Okay, so even there's a positive tinge there. He's like, yeah, you know what? If I died, it would be good for me. I'd go, to, I'd go home. But, you know, it's better for me to stay here. So even in this, there's good to be accomplished. It's really, there's this positive tone. And then we get into the third section, as I see it, uh, verse 27, where he just, he just comes out and he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So now, I think, in my opinion, this is where we're getting into the part of the letter where... Paul is saying, okay, here are some intermediary conclusions, right? I love you guys. You guys have participated with me. I may or may not see you, so here's what I want from you. I want to hear good gossip about you. Right? That's what he says. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy, right? That's just like a command. It's a statement. Do this thing. But why? Right? So that I will hear Even if I don't come see you, I'll hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. There's a lot of unity there. And then he talks about, you know, don't be alarmed about your opponents because, you know, and even in your lack of alarm, by you staying not alarmed, that's a sign of destruction for them. Because they can't destroy you. And then verse 29, it gets a little more interesting for the Philippians' sake. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, okay, well, what other good thing has been granted to me? But also to suffer for his sake experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. All right, so I think in these few verses at the what I'm thinking of is the third kind of the third section of the letter. What he's saying is you need to be one because with belief comes suffering. And he couches it kind of an interesting way. He says, it's been granted to you to believe, but not only to believe, it's been granted to you to suffer. Now I think we're starting to touch on the reasons behind our passage when we get to our passage, right? We're really closer than you think because the next 11 verses are motivation for this, right? So, so think about verse 27. What he wants, what Paul wants is, I want you to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. How is that done? Standing firm in one spirit, one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. My mind is like your mind. And that's because our minds are like God's mind. It's not because we agree Right? We could agree on all kinds of things. This doesn't mean we have the one mind Paul's talking about here. 
We actually have to agree with God first, and then we have one mind, right? Um, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Not watching one person strive or stumble for the gospel, right? Striving together for the gospel. This is, this is where Paul is first telling them what he wants for them. Not that they're not doing it, but to me, it just shows the importance of it on Paul's mind. If there's one, the first thing I want to say to these people that I love is, you need to be together. You need to get together. You need to be together. You need to stay together. I don't mean physically. Together in spirit and in mind. Because you're going to suffer. If you believe in Jesus, what he's saying here, if you actually believe, really believe in Jesus, you will suffer. You're going to suffer. Right? Because you're going to do the things that Jesus did and the world hated Jesus. We read that this morning. The world's going to hate you. Right? It's not, you, you don't have to go pick fights. <laughs> There's no reason for a Christian to ever go pick a fight. The fight will come to you. Right? The fight will come to you. And it might be internal. In this country, a lot, much of it's internal. Right? Shielding your eyes, shielding your ears, controlling your tongue. That's suffering. If you've ever done it, you know <laughs> it's suffering. If you just let your tongue go, there's no suffering there. Right? So now let's look in chapter 2. <clears throat> he, he wants to give them more motivation, not just, you know what, you're going to suffer. So good luck with that. Right? I mean, he tells them that's the reason they need to be united, but that's not really the motivation. I mean, that's not a motivational thing. Yeah, it's going to hurt, right? The motivation comes here in, in, in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, right, he says, because of this that I've just told you, now he kind of like begs them, right? And here's, here's, what, here, here, here's the way he begs. If there's any encouragement in Christ, is there encouragement in Christ? Yes. There's no if, but he says if, right? If that exists... If there's any consolation of love, does love console? Yes. Right. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, is there fellowship of the Spirit for Christians? Yes. He's not saying, oh, well, you need to evaluate, is, does love console, and then decide if what I'm telling you is true. What he's saying is these are so overwhelmingly true that what I'm about to say is binding. He's not actually giving an if-then so you can evaluate whether or not you engage in these things. He's saying, if the sun is round, then do this. Right? I mean, that's another way. That's just using nature. But he's not using nature. He's using more real things than nature. If there's any encouragement in Christ. Right? So he, he's starting to give motivation for how to overcome this, this struggle to be united. If it was easy, he'd never have to tell people to do it. If it was natural, you'd never have to write two chapters telling people to be united. It would just happen. We'd bump into each other and we're like, oh, we're one over one mind. How nice. It doesn't happen that way. Right? This is how it happens. What we're reading right now, these verses here. 
You need to think about encouragement in Christ. You need to think about consolation of love, fellowship of the Spirit. If there's any affection and compassion, then he says, make my joy complete, verse 2, by being of the same mind. Right? This is exactly what he just said. If you're reading the whole letter, this is what he said like seven seconds ago. How important is it to be of one mind in Paul's estimation? He just said it twice in the course of ten seconds. Being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, we could go into all kinds of word studies and see how those are all different things. He wants unity among the brethren. And I'm not knocking that word study. It's just I'm not going to do that here this morning. And it's not necessary to understand what he wants. He wants unity and he wants people working together he does not want division in the body. So now he gives an example, beginning in verse, well, beginning in verse 4, but, or 5. Verses 3 and 4, he makes this transition. He says, here's how you do this. This is what it looks like when you, when you have unity. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Okay, now we're getting down to kind of brass tacks. What do I do when I wake up on Monday? I don't do anything from selfishness. Anything from selfishness. It's harder when you think about the anything part. Yeah, I don't do most things from selfishness. Don't do anything from selfishness. Try that on. Right? But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. <clears throat> I think when we studied Philippians or in another lesson or something, that, that phrase, more important than yourselves, he uses twice in this, in, in this letter. The other time he uses it is in chapter 3. If you turn over and look in chapter 3, He says in verse 8, more than that, right? He's talked about all the things that he's kind of given up or that he's been. More than that, I count all things to be lost in, viewing, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. That same word, surpassing value of knowing, surpassing value, he's saying take that and apply that to your brethren. The way I feel about knowing Jesus, you feel that way about your brothers. It's the same Greek word. Try that on for size. We haven't even gotten to our text. He's saying you should be so one or desire so much to be one that the importance you place on your brethren in daily life is similar to the importance I place on knowing Christ. a big deal this is not like agreeing on the color of the carpet it's not the kind of unity we're talking about okay verse 4 do not merely look out for your own personal interests but also for the interests of others okay I don't do anything out of selfishness I just I just don't do anything well that's not acceptable 
<coughs> he's actually saying, you go out and you find out what is to the benefit of your brothers and sisters, and you go grab onto that and you do it for them. And he's not saying ignore yourself, right? He says, because he says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests. You have to take care of yourself, right? Or you become a burden to the people around you. He's not saying impoverish yourself. He's not saying burn your house down out of negligence. You know, he's not saying any of that stuff. He's saying, don't let that define you. You are so active in other people's interests that they merge with your own interests. You wake up in the morning and you're like, okay, do I do this for Paulette or do I do this for myself? Or, you know, and you're just weighing like, what can I accomplish today? You know what I'm saying? They, they become so equivalent in your mind that their interests are that important to you. So he's saying that's what it looks like. Here's the example. Verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves. Right? You've got to have an attitude. You've got to have an attitude for the actions to work. This is the attitude. Right here. Which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God. Now you imagine yourself in the form of God. Just imagine you are God. And your creation is in rebellion. Well, they deserve what they get. Right? But he, Jesus, didn't have that. Jesus says, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. It wasn't something to hold on to. But he emptied himself. I'm not going to be on the throne. I'm not going to be glorious. I'm going to take on the form of a man. What kind of man? A bondservant. I'm going to go and I'm going to show these people what it's like to be what I designed them to be. A servant. As God. That's the attitude we should have. Taking the form of a bondservant, verse 7, being made in the likeness of men. Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man. Okay, that, that's, that's enough humility, right? Okay, I'm a man, but you know what? I'm better than all you people because I'm God, and you're not. And you're in rebellion, and I'm not. He didn't do that. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Because that was what was required to save all those rebellious people he was surrounded by. His attitude toward them was that their necessities and needs spiritually outweighed his physical desires. Even his spiritual desires, I would say. He wanted to go to heaven. He knew he could achieve that, but he had to go to the cross. The, ut, the ultimate and utmost, how did verse 4 put it? Interest, personal interest. Right? His utmost interest was the salvation of the people around him. Paul's saying that's the attitude you actually have to have as a Christian to do what I'm telling you to do. You can't just say, well, you know what? I like Josh and that's just going to have to be good enough. I like him. That's unity. That is not what's being described in this text. 
the last couple of verses in this section talk about the result of what Jesus did. Okay, um, Verse 9, For this reason God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Right? These are the results of what happened. But it's, it's, it's almost an aside from the main line of thinking, which is you need to be one. And this is what it looks like. If you want to look at how you should act within the body to be one, look at what Jesus did from start to finish. When he abandoned the throne, he took the form of the people who were in rebellion, and then he was their slave, and then he died. That's your pattern for life among the brethren. That is my pattern. That's the pattern given to me. If I say, God, what am I supposed to do in this church? He says, Jesus left the throne. What throne do you have yourself on? Where do you sit and look down on your brethren? Whatever that is, get off of it. Um, where do you not serve your brethren? Bond servant here that's used for Jesus is slave. There's nothing a bond servant could refuse. I mean, in, in terms of men, right? Well, what, in what ways do we refuse to serve each other? I mean, this church right here. In what ways do we refuse? to serve each other. I'm just not going to go to that extent. Does it approach this? Deity taking on the form of creation? No. I can answer that for you. No. It doesn't. Then we get to our passage in verse 12. So then. He's talked a little bit about like what it looks like, what do you have to do in life. <clears throat> but then we get to verse 12. And I just want to read our passage, 12 through 16. Keep in mind, what does Paul want for you? What does he want for this congregation? The same thing he wanted for the Philippians. I will, I'll, I'll stake any reputation on that. He wants the same thing. So think about what Paul wants for you in this congregation and the example he's just given to you about how to be one in spirit, one in mind, together fighting for the gospel. And now let's read verses 12 through 16. I'm going to read them slowly. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom 
you appear as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. I think there's a lot of weight behind those things that I have in the past read as small. Do things without grumbling and complaining. To me, that sounds really small. That's not what he said. He said, do all things without grumbling or complaining. And he said that after he gave me the example of Jesus leaving the throne. These are, these are not easy things to consider. Because what we're fighting against is the self and the flesh saying, but you deserve, but they don't do this, but they don't deserve, but you, whatever, fill in the blank, right? That is not in this text. The only you that's in this text is that you have interests. They exist. And they're on the same level as everyone else around you. Or they should be. Right? That's the lesson. If you have any reason to doubt your relationship with God the the group that meets here any person in this room would be happy to read the Bible study the Bible consider your questions whether you have been baptized into Christ or not at some point people have doubts about their standing with God this text that we just read should inspire you to want to be in that situation, not outside of it. If, if this weight and responsibility is put on the body of Christ, right, to be one and united so that they don't become destroyed by the world, what chance does someone outside the body have? Zero. There isn't a chance. Give someone here an opportunity to resolve those doubts with the word, not based on human wisdom. If you believe that Jesus, the Son of God, did what we just read, that he died for your sins and he was raised on the third day, and you're prepared to confess that belief, prepared to repent of any current sin that you're living in, (coughs) change your ways that have led you to sin, and be baptized to wash away those sins, then you need to take those steps and do those things. We encourage you to think about that as we stand and sing at this time.